All right, would you find a copy of God's Word? Turn there with me to Lamentations chapter 3 as we continue to work our way down through these five poems. I hope that if you were with us this past Sunday night, you saw that there is hope. It's been a bit bleak. Uh, the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the disobedience of God's people and sin that has brought this destruction upon them, the God that is angry with them, these realities have loomed large and have weighed heavy on our minds and souls as we have studied this text. But as I told you, as we've seen in small glimpses through the first poem in chapter 1 and the second poem in chapter 2, we then see come to fruition in this lengthier poem in chapter 3. And I told you that though it is a Hebrew acrostic structure, which if you've not been with us, that simply means that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse in the first two chapters begins with a new letter of the alphabet. So like A, the first line begins with A, the next line begins with B, the next line begins with C. That's called an acrostic, and it was according to the Hebrew alphabet. So that chapter 3 is continues with this Hebrew acrostic form and structure, though it's a bit modified, each letter is given three verses or a little triad of verses, a stanza, so that there are now 22 letters, three verses per letter. There's 66 verses. One of the reasons in God's providence and wisdom that it is so structured this way is because it helps us to see the centerpiece of the work. And chapter 3 is both then the structural, by way of its difference, the structural centerpiece of the work and the main center of the poetry, but it is also then the theological centerpiece of the work. So that all that we can know in chapters 1 and 2 is to be understood in light of the hope we see in chapter 3. All that we will see in chapters 4 and 5 as it kind of delves off into the abyss again in four and then ascends the mountain of hope again in five, what we see is that those chapters look back on chapter three and we must read them in light of what we've learned from the narrator and the poet here in chapter three. Now, last time we studied the the first stanza, the first section of this poem, which is composed of verses one through 24. And in that, we have the poet, uh, I think, speaking in first person as he is the man that has endured affliction. So that this is a guy who, though Israel, though Jerusalem is suffering because of their sins corporately, they are not necessarily his sins individually. And if we believe that it was written by Jeremiah, which I think is in all likelihood a high probability, then in fact, this is the man lamenting these sins and enduring suffering on account of these sins and God's judgment upon them that he prophesied against and tried to call them to repentance from. Okay, So we saw, though, that in the first 24 verses, as he, in first-person, intimate fashion, recounts the impact that this destruction has brought to him personally, the suffering that he has endured under the hand of God's judgment. Now, Remember that one of the themes that's been building up has been the awareness that we see in the text, both of the individual and of the nation corporately, that they deserve all that they are getting. 
that God is the agent of destruction that has come upon them and that he has come upon them with destruction because of their in uh, their, their, their continuing and unrepentant sin and disobedience running from him. Now, I say that to remind you of what we see in the first 24 verses. That sort of culminates then with this personal expression of grief and suffering that is experienced by the writer here. The interesting thing, though, that we saw was that as much as he endures the suffering of God... He is then brought in his mind to think upon the person of God. Who is God that is doing this to me? And in reflecting upon the person of God, he then reflects and remembers some things about the nature of God. That is that God is not vindictive or angry but that he is compassionate and has steadfast love for his people. And in light of his reflecting and remembering some truths about the nature of God, in the midst of his suffering and struggle, he he sort of cries out with this wonderful theological truth in verses 22, 23, 24 that we read this morning, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end. This is in the midst of his suffering. I mean, it's amazing that they are new each morning. He proclaims, great God is your faithfulness. And then he sets out this wonderful truth as he almost makes this commitment again with his life and his heart and mind. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. So that he's left then, even under the weight of the judging hand of God, with a, an intimate and careful and theologically uh, correct reflection upon who God is and how God works. And at the end of all of that, he is left calling upon and trusting in and placing and finding his hope in God and God only. And I said, you know, we cannot miss the truth here that's being taught. If you were with us last time, that it is often that God uses suffering to show us that he is all that we have. When we're left with nothing. When we are left with nothing but God. And so we think about who he is and we reflect upon what he's done. And we remember some things about his person and work in our own lives and his nature. And we are led through and by suffering to utter dependence upon him. I think that's where the poet is. Now, if the first section of this poem emphasizes by this first person speaker what he has learned about and through suffering and about God's faithfulness in the suffering... Then what we find in verses 25 to 39 is very helpful because in this section, he answers for us the question, what then should I do? That's a, that's a significant question. When one is brought through suffering or any other means in God's care to a right understanding of who God is and what he's doing, to a clear remembrance upon the faithfulness of God, the newness of his mercies, the nearness of his faithfulness and love, that he is our portion, what response do we have in the midst of suffering? What is the proper response to the God that has brought them? It's a good question, and that's the question that he seeks to answer. Now, this section, verses 25 to 39, it breaks into three smaller sections, and I'm going to let those three sections drive the train of our study tonight. I just want the text to, I just want to tell you what, what I think the text says. So in verses 25 through 30, 
He reflects on the appropriate response for the one who has come to grips with the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the midst of suffering. So in light of God's goodness, in light of his faithfulness, even in the midst of suffering, what is appropriate for me to do? Then in verses 31 through 36, he is going to emphasize two realities, well, 31 through 39, two realities that help lead us to this right response. And that is, number one, he remembers and emphasizes the justice of God. That helps us with the right response. And then in 37 to 39, he helps us by emphasizing the sovereignty of God. And I think it is his careful reflection upon these two realities that have helped him to have a right and a biblical response to suffering and the God that has brought it. That was kind of a lot, but maybe you can see a bit where we're going and we'll look down through here together. So we're going to read verses 25 through 39 together. And before we turn to God's word now, let's ask him to open it for us. Oh God, we thank you that you've gathered us together again. And God, now that you have set your word before us, and you've set your word over us, and God, we pray that you would help us to give it its proper place, that even with very difficult texts like Lamentations, God, that we would see and learn the truths of who you are and what you have done and what you are doing from them. God, open your word to us now. Give us eyes that we may see. Give us ears that we may hear. Give us wisdom in our minds. Give us hearts that are tilled and receptive to the seed of the gospel found here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, beginning in verse 25, he then goes on to say, The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Amen. I think these are helpful words. The first thing that I want us to see then is our response to God in the midst of grief, particularly when that grief leads us to reflect upon God and who he is. How do we respond to such a God who is near in mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness, but who is mighty in judgment and raining that judgment down upon sin and upon even his people. What sort of response do we have to such a great God? Well, I love what he says. Number one, very simple. We must seek him. We must seek him. Remember in chapters one and two, particularly, we saw that the nation corporately and the poet or the writer individually, they cry out for God to what? To see, 
to see them. And I told you that's a bit of an ironic reality because it is precisely in light of God's seeing their sin that the judgment and destruction has come. But they continue to plead with God that he would see their plight and that he would ultimately give his anger would give way to compassion. Right? Because they know God to be full of compassion and love and mercy. And so he then is now reminding us and himself, I think, that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. The soul that seeks him. Remember what I said, where do you go in the midst of such difficulty? It is often that God uses severe grief and difficulty and pain and suffering in order to drive us to himself where we seek him. And friends, it's very effective. I can tell you in my own life, but also in pastoring for the last number of years, that there are people who have absolutely no interest in God, no interest in Christ, no interest in his people until things fall apart. And in the midst of their suffering, they turn to the only place that they have left, and they come to the church. The sad reality, though, is it's very superficial, and most of the time, though not always, when things seem to get a little bit better, they go right back out. And then when things get worse again, they return from time to time. But the Lord is good to those who seek Him, who wait from the soul that seeks Him. And friends, I would simply ask you, when, not to sound you know, cliche, but when the going gets tough, where do you go? I mean... Are you thinking about who God is and what he can do for you? Are you turning to the only source of life and health and prosperity and salvation and forgiveness? Or do you go to this friend or that friend or this counselor or Oprah or Dr. Phil or the bottle or the pill or the football game or whatever idol that you put at the top of your life on occasion? I mean, where do you go? Where do you turn? Do you seek God out God says, seek me and you will find me. God does not turn away the humble heart that seeks him. Secondly, and very simply, look at what he says, and I've already mentioned it. We must wait on God. Sometimes when we seek him, we do not get the answer that we want. Particularly if we seek deliverance from suffering. Sometimes God has different plans God's timing is not our timing. God's ways are not our ways. God's mysteries are not always unfolded for us to know. In fact, most of the time they are not, which is why he combines this here. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. There is this holy patience. There is this willingness to trust that God is in control, that I know God to be full of compassion and faithfulness and steadfast love for his people. Ergo, it is worthy of my waiting. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Look at what he says in verse 26. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. How often do we wait quietly? (laughs) You know, I have four children. So you can wait impatiently. You know, you, you can wait for the cup of milk asking every five seconds. And I'm, there's one of me and I'm trying to get it as fast as I can. It's one thing to wait, 
with anxiety and frustration and impatience, asking again and again and again and again, oh, but I'm waiting, I'm waiting, just hurry up. Do you see what he says here? Man, it's good. In light of remembering who God is, in light of seeing your sufferings for what they are, in light of understanding sin and giving it its place, in light of the goodness of God and remembering his benefits and his grace and his mercies that have been near in your life in the past, it is good then to accept God's care. That's what he's saying. To be patient and to wait quietly. We must wait on God. We must wait until he answers and until he delivers and until he grows. Thirdly, this is not unlike the first, let us bear patiently the yoke that God has placed upon us. Let us bear patiently, as we saw this morning, right? There is a God of suffering. That is a crucially important reality. And remember, we saw it in Hebrews. You have to begin with understanding that there is a God and he is the God of suffering, that everything comes under his care, which means he is using that suffering, but it means that the suffering comes. So look at what he says here. Not only is it good that one would wait on him with patience, look at what he says. It is good for a man also that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, there is an exegetical question. What is this yoke? What what is the yoke here? It's not uncommon uh, to the scriptures, but even particularly here, if you go back to Lamentations 1 verse 14, look at what it says. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, right? By his hand, they were fastened together. So the sins are referenced as a yoke. But I think even in light of the first 24 verses here in chapter 3, where the, 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 the writer is lamenting his own personal sufferings because of sin, I think it is the yoke of suffering. And it is the yoke of suffering that comes because of sin and because of disobedience and God's judgment against those things. So it is the yoke of suffering and the yoke of sin. And look at how he says this. It's very interesting. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke. That's the first thing, to bear it to accept it, to wait quietly and to bear the yoke that God has placed upon you. Remember, if this is Jeremiah, that he is bearing a yoke of suffering that he did not even garner. It is good that a man bear the yoke. And friends, I would simply encourage you with whatever God has placed upon you today. You know, a lot of people say, God will never, never give you more than you can handle. Um, that's not really true. God always gives us more than we can handle because he wants us to depend on him. God will never give you more than he can handle for you. However you want to say it, I don't know. God always gives us more than we can handle because he wants us not to handle it. He wants us to give it to him, to trust him, to lean on him, right? So whatever, whatever yoke you bear, whether it's on account of your sin or someone else's, I'm not simply saying, you know, repent of the sins, try to make things right, be reconciled, be repentant, be restored. But by all means, friends, whatever suffering you endure because God is bringing it, let your mentality and your heart be willing to patiently bear that yoke. He says in his youth here, I think he simply means while he's able. It's, it was a lot easier. Some of you are a little older than I am. And, and you will probably testify that, it's a lot easier to bear the yoke of work or whatever yoke it may be in your youth. 
And I think that's, I think that's the idea here. It's metaphorical, but he's saying to, it's a good thing to position yourself and to prepare yourself because the yoke of God's providence in the lives of sinners is often arduous and painful. Just ask Job. Just ask Paul. Just ask Peter or Peter's wife who gave her life, if we can trust the records of Christian history, for her faith in an attempt to bring Peter to his knees and recount his faith. Friends, just ask Jesus. Don't forget what we saw this morning in Hebrews chapter 2. He was made perfect as our Messiah through suffering so that as a sufferer, he could be a sympathizer. Just ask Jesus about the yoke of God's providence. But the yoke then is good, isn't it? Painful, but for a purpose. Do you see how these things go together, even if ironically, that the difficulty of God's providence is necessarily tied to the wonders of God's providence? And so he says these first three things, seek God, wait on God with quietness and bear patiently the yoke that he's given until he comes and delivers. Fourthly, notice what he says here, moving down to verses 28 and following. He says that we should humble ourselves under his care. Notice, look at what he says. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. That is the yoke. But notice the the thrust here is our posture, that we should sit alone silently. Then he says in verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. What's he talking about? He's not just talking about eating dirt here. And he's he's speaking literally. It's similar. Go back to chapter 2, verse 10. We saw this with the elders in the second poem. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth, right? What's going on? This is consistent with ancient mourning rituals. So that they are mourning their sin. They are humbling themselves before God, right? And why the mouth to the dust? Because what he's saying is to make yourself low as you wait on God and as you bear patiently under his the difficulties of his providence, trusting his care, we must do so with a certain posture of humility. We must put our faces down before God. We must look and trust in him, understanding that he is God, that we are not, that his plans are better, even if we do not understand, and that he is ruling and reigning, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, even when we cannot see it to be so. Friends, if we believe that God is ruling and reigning and sitting on his throne and that God has subjected all things underneath him, then it will be easy for us to humble ourselves underneath his care and trust him, will it not? So we've seen this in chapter 2, verse 10. It's the language of humility. Then finally, look at what he says. Humble yourselves. Why? There may yet be hope. Hope. God has not forgotten that his care is imminent. Look at verse 30. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. The last thing he's telling us is to trust that God will deliver. 
What's the issue about giving the cheek and enduring the insults and being filled with them? What he's saying is to remember if God can be trusted and if we humble ourselves under his care and if we remember his goodness and his mercies that are near. If all of these things are true, then a right response to them is to endure affliction. Not seeking vengeance for yourself. Not feeling compelled to have to right every wrong. Not having to call everyone to account for their sins against you. Not waiting on apologies from every person that has offended you. To trust vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that every wrong, every evil, every, every one of them that is committed against his children, he knows, he remembers, and he is coming to bring about recompense. So we can turn the cheek. We can give them the other cheek. We can extend forgiveness when it is not merited, when it is not deserved. All of those things are an appropriate response because they reflect our utter trust in God to deliver us from our enemies. Look, if you were with us for any of our study through Samuel and David, you saw this again and again and again. That everywhere David went, God gave him the victory. David did not have to kill Saul in the secrecy of the darkness in sin, did he? He did not have to bring about vigilante justice because he remembered that God will bring vengeance. And ultimately God did. Let us trust God like that. That's an appropriate response. So there are those five things. Seek God, wait on God, bear patiently the yoke until he comes to lift it. Humble yourself under his providence and care. And then in doing so, trust that he will come to save and deliver. Now, you say that sounds great, but it sounds really difficult to do. It's particularly in the midst of grief and suffering the same way that we've seen in this passage. Now he reflects on two realities, I think, that help to lead us there. And we'll, we'll look at these very briefly. Two realities that encourage in our own hearts that encourage in our own hearts this type of trust in God's care and dependence upon him, seeking him out. All right, let's get back to the text here. Um, look at verse 31 through 34. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve of these things. What's he saying? The reason we can trust God in the midst of this type of suffering is because of the justice of God. That God is just. God is not vindictive. God is not out seeking all sorts of punitive damages from those that have offended him. Notice what he says. God is fair. God will not cast off forever. Why? Because he's promised to save. And as a matter of integrity and justice, he will do so. Though he does cause grief, as he would have well known, he does have compassion. He will have compassion. And it will be so in accord with the abundance of his steadfast love and faithfulness. He does not afflict from his heart. In other words, he does not derive joy from judging his people in this way. He does not bring joy from afflicting his people like this. 
He does not grieve the children of men. In other words, he's not out uh, doing unto them what they do not deserve or committing injustices against them so as to grieve them. Do you see that language? He's not interested in crushing underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. He's not interested in denying a man justice in the presence of the Most High. Maybe a court there. He's not interested in subverting a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve of these things. That's good news to us. Like we saw this morning, because if we're united in Christ, God has made promises. God has made promises. And according to his steadfast love, the abundance of his mercies, the word that he's given, though his uh, anger may last for the night, the darkness, though it may last for the night, there is joy and light in the morning, right? That his anger will not last forever. That you will not be cast off forever. That the compassion of the Lord will ultimately break through. So he says, listen, if you want to have a right response to grief, you must remember that God is a just God. He loves his children and he will not... uh, He will not leave them. He will not forsake them. But in accord with his nature and his word that he's given and the steadfast love that he has, he will not simply leave them in unending pain and suffering because he's just. Now, the second thing that he reminds us of that helps to lead to this response, look at 37, 38, and 39. Notice it sort of seems disjointed here, but I, I don't think it is. He now reflects, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, that's God, that good and bad come, that is calamity, probably the suffering is enduring? Why should a living man then complain about the punishment of his sins? Do you see what he's saying? Everything that is, is because of God. Remember the writer of the Hebrews reflected that same reality this morning, that he from whom and for whom all things exist saw fitting to make Christ perfect through suffering. But notice we talked about the ultimate sovereignty of God, the God of the suffering. What's the poet here reflecting upon? He's finding great hope and a right biblical response to suffering in accord with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Friends, there are many Christian churches around here today that go to great lengths to diminish the ultimate sovereignty of God. I am baffled as to why. There is no greater doctrine in supporting your Christian life and giving you hope than to know that God is in control. That that everything is held in the palm of his hand. That you only are because God says so. That you have because God gives. That you continue because God sustains. That the gospel goes forth because God sends it. That people are saved because God saves them and changes them and regenerates them and makes them new. We only exist because God does. If God wasn't doing, who of us would be sufficient to do? Can you make the flowers bloom? Can you send the rain to refresh the earth? No. God can and God does and it is in his control. And friends, that doctrine, while it may be mysterious and it may cause some questions in accord with our human logic and affections, let it be a hope and an anchor for your souls to know that God is sovereign over all things. How did it come to be unless God spoke it and it happened? Is it not from his mouth that good and bad come? If that is so, friends, the only place to go in the midst of our darkness is to the light. 
It's the only place. If the darkness is to be lifted, it will only be lifted by the light of Christ. If the prayers are to be answered, if the suffering is to be given purpose, it will only be because God uses it. Friends, let us then turn to God. What does he say in these verses? 25 to 39. Well, simply put, in the first 24, after enduring terrible pain and difficulty, he begins to think about who God is. And in reflecting upon who God is, he is brought to remember this truth, that God is good and in his goodness, he is in control. Friends, don't forget that. I don't know what you're suffering through tonight. I don't know what struggle you will face tomorrow. But though he causes grief and pain and his anger burns hot against sin, he is a God that is full of compassion. And in him there may yet be hope. Verse 29, let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the sovereign care that you express over our lives. God, thank you for the compassion that you have for us frail and pathetic sinners. God, thank you that you are not vindictive, that you do not give us what we deserve, that you are slow to anger and quick to show kindness. God, thank you that your mercies are new each morning. Thank you that your steadfast love and faithfulness never come to an end. God, accord in accord with these things, we pray that you would work in our lives and that you would help us to trust you. Even when we cannot see you're in control, I pray that you would remind us it is so that we would humble ourselves and wait patiently upon your deliverance. God, put us in a place where you're all we have and bring us immense joy and hope from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.